Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Most of you have likely heard the big news about last weekend's U.S. military operation that targeted one of the most wanted terrorists in the world, ISIS leader al-Baghdadi. The mission culminated in al-Baghdadi's death when U.S. Special Forces descended on the compound where he was hiding in Syria and the Islamic State leader detonated his suicide vest, blowing up himself and killing three of his children as well. Now, we all have to agree that the killing of al-Baghdadi is a huge blow to ISIS and a very big deal in the fight against terrorism. You may also have heard that a military working dog who took part in the raid was injured during the operation. President Trump praised the dog at length via social media on Monday. He said the dog was one of several who chased al-Baghdadi down a tunnel and was injured when the ISIS leader detonated his suicide vest. Trump tweeted a photo of the dog, a Belgium Malinois, referring to the dog as wonderful, a good boy, and extremely talented. He continued, we have declassified a picture of the wonderful dog that did such a great job. Defense Department sources confirmed to Newsweek on Monday that the dog's name is Conan, and U.S. Army General Mark A. Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, stated Monday that the dog was slightly injured and would make a full recovery. Belgium Malinois are frequently used by the U.S. military to guide and protect troops, search out enemy forces, and seek out explosives. Some serve as bomb sniffers in Iraq and Afghanistan. The breed is described as driven and extremely intelligent, making these dogs an optimal choice for law enforcement. In fact, when Navy SEAL Team 6 killed Osama bin Laden in May of 2011, only one of the 81 team members' names was released. That name was Cairo, and it belonged to a Belgian Malinois, who, like his human counterparts, was outfitted in strong, flexible body armor and specially designed goggles complete with night vision and infrared capability. Following the capture and killing of bin Laden, Time magazine awarded Cairo the Animal of the Year Award in 2011. Military working dogs play an essential role in the U.S. military, and their jobs have evolved over the years just as warfare has changed. Here's some information about military dogs that I found, and I thought I would share it with you. There are about 2,500 war dogs in the United States service today, with about 700 serving at any given time overseas. Although dogs have served in combat along U.S. soldiers during every major conflict since the nation was established, they were not officially recognized until World War II. The majority of military working dogs are purchased from countries like Germany and the Netherlands, where dogs have been bred for military service for hundreds of years. An average career for a military working dog is approximately eight years. A fully trained bomb or drug detection canine can detect explosives or drugs with an average of 98% accuracy. Now, just like human veterans, military working dogs can get post-traumatic stress disorder. Symptoms of canine PTSD include hypervigilance, increased startle response, attempts to run away or escape, withdrawal, changes in rapport with the handler, and problems performing trained tasks. Now, there's no question that these skilled and trained dogs are incredibly valuable additions to our military forces. But do we have the right to put them in harm's way? I think this is a question worth talking about. Is it okay to use animals in dangerous situations, like in the military and law enforcement, instead of or along with humans? What do you think? 
I posed this question to a few of our Animals Today friends and guests, and I'd like to share with you the responses. First, Mark Momjian, family law expert and a frequent Animals Today guest. Mark states, Working dogs have been placed in harm's way not only on the battlefield, but when they are used by local, regional, and national law enforcement, at the site of firefighters, in the fight against terror, and in times of natural disaster. They have behaved heroically, and in my opinion, they richly deserve to be honored for their service to humankind. In fact, there are many memorial sites throughout the U.S. that pay tribute to the dogs and other animals that have been played inspirational roles in the service of freedom, from San Antonio, Texas and Riverside, California, to New York City and Washington, D.C. I deeply respect that there are strong opinions on both sides of this issue. Our species arguably should not put innocent animals in harm's way. But I would rather focus on eliminating violence in the human world as our first priority so that dogs and other animals do not have to risk their lives. In a perfect world, that would be the primary aim, to promote peace among our species so that animals, like the dog who behaved so heroically on the latest mission in Syria, will never have to make the ultimate sacrifice. This next statement is from Dr. Lori Marino, founder and president of the Whale Sanctuary Project and the founder and executive director of Camilla Center for Animal Advocacy. A dog, a Belgium Malinois, used by the U.S. military, is being celebrated for his role in the capture of ISIS leader al-Baghdadi. In the course of the operation, the dog was wounded but has now returned to service. He's been celebrated as a hero, and indeed he is. But we need to look behind the curtain at the ethics of using dogs and other animals in dangerous situations such as military and police operations. Was it right to coerce this dog into a situation where he was not only wounded but could have easily been killed? My answer is no. The bottom line is that these dogs are used in situations that are by definition extremely dangerous and in some cases considered too risky for humans. Ethically, we should not be willing to put others in a situation that we would not want to be in ourselves. Yet, the use of military dogs is an egregious example of just such a practice. Another is the use of dolphins and sea lions by the U.S. Navy. Domesticated animals such as dogs, pigs, oxen, camels, and horses continue to be used for perilous functions such as bomb detection. And hundreds of thousands of animals are deliberately mutilated, made sick, and killed as part of combat training. All of it in the name of human well-being. Our species is a particularly violent one that unfortunately engages in all manner of aggression towards each other in military conflicts. But these conflicts are our problem, our issue, and our species should bear the full responsibility for the consequences. It is cowardly and immoral to expect other animals to bear the brunt of our aggressions against each other. The next statement is from our friend Clive Wynn. He's professor of psychology at Arizona State University. Clive states, this is certainly something I've thought about quite a bit, and I don't see a simple answer to the ethics of the situation. On the one hand, clearly the dogs are being exposed to most extreme stressors. The situations into which how one deals with that particular ethical dilemma is ultimately a personal decision. There are some people who argue that no animals should serve human purposes in any way. And there are those who would say that certain outcomes justify whatever imposition may be needed to achieve an important consequence. I don't subscribe to either extreme position, but rather am stuck in what Hal Herzog in his wonderful book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, and Some We Eat, referred to as the muddled 
middle. Some actions towards animals are too cruel to ever be justified, whatever the means. But certain outcomes may justify some pretty uncomfortable situations for the animals. I've never worked with any military working dog, so I don't have a really clear sense of how much the animals get pleasure in their work and how much they are stressed by it. I certainly don't accept that the dogs are quote, heroic in the sense we apply that to each other, and I don't think the awards we may give them make any difference to them. I had a similar thought around President George H.W. Bush's dog, Sully. That dog probably didn't understand that Bush was dead and certainly did not know what was in the casket. He was only photographed lying next to the casket because someone put him there. I'm also not an anti-terrorism specialist, so I don't know how effective cutting off the head of a terrorist organization is in ultimately defeating the threat. My take-home would be, let's use this extreme situation to think about the stressful scenarios we put dogs into in our everyday lives in order to achieve our more mundane aims. Is it reasonable to train a dog to pull a wheelchair? I remember the late, great Ray Coppinger violently objected to this practice because of the difficult forces it put across the dog's body. Is it reasonable to shut a dog up in a house or a crate all day because it's difficult to get home to play with him? These are situations we have some control over, so let's try and think clearly about them and observe our dog's comfort levels closely. And finally, this is from Mark Beckoff, PhD, Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, University of Colorado, Boulder. It's about time to seriously consider not using dogs and other non-humans in wars. They, just like us, suffer from serious physical injuries and psychological disorders. And there must be non-animal alternatives that would be just as good, if not better. So tell me what you think. Is it okay to use animals in dangerous situations, like in the military and law enforcement, instead of or along with humans? Email me and tell me what you think. Dr. Lori at animalstodayradio.com. That's D-R-L-O-R-I at animalstodayradio.com. Don't go away. More with the show right after the break. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. Do you ever wonder what you can do to be nicer to animals and to help them? Here are a few things you can do to show your appreciation to our furry friends. You can donate to or volunteer at your local animal shelter. Walking the dogs and playing with the cats is a meaningful way to make a difference in the lives of homeless animals in our shelters. 
You can be a foster parent if you have the extra time and space. Becoming a foster parent is a wonderful way to take some of the burden off our overcrowded shelters by giving an animal a loving place to live until a forever home is found. Increase your appreciation for wildlife by providing a welcoming space around your home for butterflies, hummingbirds, and other creatures. Also, by simply driving cautiously through areas populated by wildlife such as deer, you're acting with compassion. These are only a few ideas to encourage you to continue thinking about acting kindly towards animals. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Lori, there is new research published in Nature, and I want to tell you about it because it's exciting and also demonstrates a reason why so many experiments on animals often do not translate to people, and particularly for drug development, okay? This paper comes out of the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, thanks to Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, by the way. The researchers wanted to construct a detailed map a catalog of all the types of cells in the human brain and compare their findings to what was recently figured out in the brains of rodents. Scientists, as you know, have been studying mouse and rat brains for a long, long time and know the structure very well and the function pretty well also. The rodents are used to test out theories and prototype drugs that might be useful for people. The Allen researchers and colleagues used human brain tissue from deceased donors, as well as tissue removed from living subjects undergoing epilepsy surgery, and they sorted through nearly 16,000 cells from the medial temporal gyrus. They found 75 different cell types in the human brain that very closely matched up with the cell types that they knew about in the rodent brains. However, Here's the thing, using a gene expression to determine which genes were switched on in which cells, that is where they found clear differences between humans and rodents. Mm. For example, they describe what is happening with serotonin, a key brain neurotransmitter related to many brain functions like mood, appetite, memory, sleep, and others. Some drugs for depression, as you know, are aimed at the serotonin system. Well, both people and mice have serotonin receptors, but they are on different types of cells. Very important. That means a candidate drug that works on a serotonin receptor in a mouse may have very different effects on a person. And they also found that expression of genes responsible for communication between neurons to be different in humans versus mice. According to one of the senior authors, who is also the chief scientist and president of the Allen Institute for Brain Science, quote, the bottom line is that there are great similarities and differences between our brain and that of a mouse. One of these tells us that there is great evolutionary continuity, and the other tells us that we are unique. He continues, if you want to cure human brain disease, you have to understand the uniqueness of the human brain. So that's from the journal Nature. That's very interesting, Peter. Thank you. What else do you have? This is from a newsletter from uh, someone I really admire a lot, Peter Diamandis. Remember me talking about him? Yeah. Peter, he's a uh, engineer, physician, and an entrepreneur. He is probably best known for being the founder and chairman of the X Prize Foundation. And he's an author of a couple of really interesting books, including Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think, and Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. I really like both of them. And what I really like about him is he is a really creative futurist, and he's really got his uh, finger on the pulse of what's happening, and he makes these bold predictions. And in this newsletter, he's excerpting from 
his uh, next book, which is going to be called The Future is Faster Than You Think. And uh, he is talking about cultured meat, which is uh, why I'm talking about Peter Diamandis. And he starts by telling us that a quarter of the planet's available landmass is being used to keep 2 billion chickens, 1.5 billion cattle, and 1 billion sheep alive. That is until we can kill them and eat them. And that meat production accounts for 70% of global water use, which is really insane. Enter cultured meat, that is meat that's grown from a few cells into a full-blown steak. So you take a few stem cells he describes from a live animal, typical via a biopsy, so the animal isn't hurt very much. You feed these cells in a nutrient-rich solution and power the whole process in bioreactors. And then uh, he says, as the industry matures and the technology gets better in a few years, you're going to be able to produce an infinite number of steaks to feed a population that more and more wants their steaks, all without killing the animals. Culture meat has the potential to become far more cost-effective than conventional meat, and soon it's going to be competing with regular meat on almost every uh, index that you can think of. The process is going to be more and more automated, so not much labor is going to be needed, not much land is going to be needed either, and a lot of the land that's now used for grazing and meat production can be reclaimed by nature, which will help the environment. What meat you end up with, of course, depends upon what cells you begin with. So if you want foie gras or something like it, or a chicken or a fish, you can just uh, culture those. A couple more stats, Lori. Cultured meat uses 99% less land, 82 to 96% less water, and produces 76 to 96% less greenhouse gases compared to conventional meat production. And it also can be a much healthier solution. Technologists are going to be able to make hamburgers that are actually good for you by changing their nutrition profile. So that's cultured meat, and the future is getting here faster than you think. Wow, fascinating. Well, this one is infuriating to me. The Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife needlessly killed a bobcat kitten who was found at Oak High School in Eugene, Oregon. This is from a press release by the Humane Society of the United States. So the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife claimed the kitten was humanely euthanized, but HSUS learned that this was not the case. But instead, an agency official informed Predator Defense, that's the other animal organization working with HSUS, in an email that the kitten was killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Can you believe this? I'm going to read some quotes from this release to illustrate that this is just one of many examples of the unnecessary overreaction by the state agency to an animal who posed no threat whatsoever to anyone. And also, you guys need to know about this. So listen to this. This is from Oregon Senior State Director of the HSUS, Kelly Peterson. The bludgeoning of a young animal whose only wrongdoing was being in the wrong place at the wrong time underscores an indifference to the welfare of the wildlife they've been sworn to protect. There's no excuse for such an inhumane action when, as we've seen with the second bobcat who was found at the same school and released unharmed earlier this week, the first kitten could have easily received that same treatment. We implore ODFW, that's the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, to listen to the intense backlash it's received and adopt a policy prioritizing non-lethal responses to wildlife conflicts. And this is from Brooks Fay, Executive Director of the National Wildlife Advocacy Group, Predator Defense, based in Oregon. 
Let's be clear, this bobcat kitten posed no threat to anyone. And unfortunately, this is not an isolated incident. Most of these cases go unnoticed by the general media because ODFW always says they humanely euthanized the animal. They didn't. It didn't meet that criteria. They killed it. In my 40 plus years of working with wildlife, I've never seen a more brutal, callous example of this agency's indifference to an animal in need of a helping hand. So this is crazy. I urge you to call Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife or send them an email. Let them know how you feel about this. Demand them to investigate. The agency should be held accountable. This release says that HSUS and the Predator Defense are calling for the ODFW Commission to take immediate action to prevent such situations from occurring in the future, including by updating the agency's wildlife conflict response policies to prioritize non-lethal options whenever possible, and by allowing the most humane methods of euthanasia when lethal removal is necessary. Don't go away. More with Animals Today right after the break. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, advancing the interests of animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting. And this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. animal in the world the world do you think has the strongest bite hmm hmm a bear a uh a snake oh not a snake i don't know um, okay i wonder if it's a mammal a hippo okay those how do you measure guess. yeah that's a good question <laughs> that's what grad students are for i guess <laughs> well i'm going to go through the top 10 Animal bites that will completely destroy you. This is from the website Listverse. And here's the list of the top 10 animals with the most powerful bites in the animal kingdom. Mm. Now, a couple notations here. One animal that is excluded from the list is the great white shark. And that is because their bite is just too hard and expensive to measure. And as the article explains, there's a lack of research on their bite. Now, another animal not on the list that should be noted is the Tasmanian devil. The Tasmanian devil has the most powerful bite relative to its body size of any living animal tested at 200 PSI or pounds per square inch, followed closely by the African painted dogs. Remember a couple years ago, Peter, a two-year-old child fell into the wild dog enclosure at the Pittsburgh Zoo. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, the mother put her kid, the two-year-old kid, on top of a railing at the edge of the viewing deck so the kid could get a better view of the wild dogs, and the dogs mauled the kid to death. Why a mother would do this is beyond me, and why we keep wild animals in zoos is another 
topic of discussion. But anyway, number 10 on the list. Okay, of, wait, before you yeah. go. So uh, you said pounds per square inch. Right. That is the measurement unit that's used uh, in this survey? Correct. Pounds per square inch. And it's measured or estimated? Uh, do you have, like I said, you've got a brave lab technician. Yes, brave lab technician is right. But in this article somewhere, it talks about National Geographic measures the bites of these animals somehow. I don't know how. Okay. Anyway, number 10 on this list is the king of the jungle, the lion. It's 600 PSI, pounds per square inch. Now, one reason the lion is not higher in the list might be that their hunting habit, strangling its prey by biting its trachea, lacks the need of a strong bite. Number nine on the list is the tiger at 1,050 PSI. The tiger is the biggest species of the cat family. They can reach 3.3 meters and weigh up to 300 pounds. Like the lion, the tiger tends to bite the throat of their prey to cut the flow of air and blood to the animal's head, but their bite is nearly twice that of the lion. Peter, did you know that there are more tigers in captivity than there are in the wild? Yes, I know that. How sad is that? It's very sad. Number eight on the list. Spotted hyena oh. with a bite force of 1,100 PSI. With its strong bite force, the spotted hyena can crush giraffe bones. It's this scavenger behavior of the spotted hyena, which is the most likely reason for the hyena's strong jaw, since it needs a powerful jaw to get to the marrow inside the bones left by lions and other big predators. Although they look like dogs, the hyena is actually more closely related to cats. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Number seven on the list of the top 10 animals with the most powerful bites is the grizzly bear at 1,200 pounds per square inch. You guessed a bear, right, Peter? Yeah. The grizzly bear is the North American subspecies of the brown bear, and it's known for its incredible size and aggression. They can weigh from 600 to 1,000 pounds, and the grizzly is considered more aggressive than any other bear. Because of their large size, grizzly bears are unable to climb trees, but despite their large size, the grizzly can run up to 34.8 miles per hour. Grizzlies mostly feed on berries and nuts, but do hunt. They can pose a danger to humans if they're surprised or if the humans get too close to their cubs, but very rarely, if ever, they go after humans for food. Number six on the list is the gorilla, 1300 PSI force bite. Gorillas are vegetarian and their jaws are primarily adapted to chew strong, hard plants like bamboo, which have given them incredibly strong jaw and neck muscles capable of punching a 1300 PSI bite. Right, that's where they get their fiber. Right. They are our closest relatives after the chimpanzee, and their numbers are shrinking rapidly, with only 700 mountain gorillas left in the wild. Gorillas tend to be gentle creatures and sometimes are referred to as gentle giants and do not pose a threat to humans. And I'm guessing that no one messes with them in the jungle anyway. You better believe that. Number five on the list of the top 10 most powerful animal bites is the hippopotamus. I think you said that one too, Peter. 
Hippopotamus has a bite force of 1,821 PSI. Yeah, the 21. Someone's there measuring this thing. That just, <laughs> not 20 just, and not just, 22. 1,821. Oh, yeah. The hippo is another big, powerful herbivore. The hippo is one of the most feared animals in Africa, being highly territorial and aggressive. It's been known to knock over small boats. The word hippopotamus comes from the Greek water horse due to the hippopotamus's fondness for water. The hippo's closest cousins are whales and cows. Wow, whales and cows. You know, it's interesting to picture them as a, as aggressive, especially the way they're depicted, like in cartoons and in children's toys and stuff like that. They're so friendly. You just want to hug them, right? I know. With little right? kids standing on its I know, like, nose. I know. Oh, so nice. <laughs> I want to kiss a hippo. No, don't kiss a hippo. Number four on the list is the jaguar. Yeah. 2,000 PSI. The jaguar has the strongest bite force of any cat. The jaguar kills by biting the head of its prey. The jaguar comes from the Amerindian word jaguar, which means he who kills with one leap. Wow, that's a good word. Number three on the list, American alligator, 2125 PSI. The American alligator is one of only two species of alligator left in the world, the other being the Chinese alligator, with an estimated population of 5 million, 1.2 million live in the state of Florida. Its range includes Florida, Texas, Louisiana, North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. They share territory with the crocodile. Their diet consists mainly on fish, turtles, and small mammals. Number two, saltwater crocodile, 3,700 PSI. <laughs> Peter, do you know the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? Oh, I know there are many different... I used to know it. I forgot them Yeah, all. there are many differences. Both are semi-aquatic reptiles with extended snouts, and they come from different parts of the world. Some physical differences might be in their snout, mouth, and nose. Crocodiles have long, narrow, V-shaped snouts, and the nose of alligators are wider and U-shaped. Mm. They have color differences too. The typical crocodile tends to have a coloration that is olive brown hue in color and alligators have a darker, almost black appearance. Lori, I remember when I was a medical intern, the first place they sent me was down to Homa, Louisiana, which has got like an elevation of like zero. And uh, I was working at the at the county hospital down there and uh i was exercising and running along the roads and there's this black debris on the ground and i keep on running past this black stuff and, and then i'm realizing it's alligator roadkill is <gasps> what i'm and then i'm realizing how did this get up here it's a couple of feet above the the swamp that i'm running on and so i stopped running on the streets oh my god it, it was it was the the strangest thing to have that realization that you were surrounded by these things as you're running. So I just didn't do that anymore. Are you dreaming of alligators chasing No, you? no. Fortunately, that doesn't haunt me like uh, the test I forgot to study for. Right. Or the building in which you forgot your classes being taught in. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to number two, this is the saltwater crocodile. And we were talking about how these pounds per square inch of force gets measured. National Geographic apparently has figured out a way to do this. And they measured this crocodile 
bite force of 3,700, yet they only measured a few smaller crocodiles. National Geographic claims that if this number were to be translated to 20-footers, which do exist, the number could be higher than 7,000 PSI. Hmm. These monsters are found from eastern India to southeast Asia and northern Australia. Number one on the list of the most powerful animal bites in the world is the Nile crocodile at 5,000 PSI. Nile crocodiles tend to be about the same size as the saltwater crocodiles, and their bite seems to be in the same range, could be interchangeable when it comes to being placed on this list. Nile crocodiles eat mainly fish, but like the saltwater crocodile, they will attack anything that crosses its path, including zebras, birds, and even small hippos. Okay, there you go. The most powerful animal bites. Mm. So the biggest lesson to learn from all of this? Stay in your house. <laughs> Don't be the lab technician for National Geographic responsible for measuring these animal bites. That's too. Peter, let's see how well you were paying attention to me. Mm. Why should I start now? What do you do if you come in contact with the grizzly bear? Do you try to outrun it or climb a tree? Okay. You can't outrun it. You have to climb a tree. Exactly. Okay. Very good. You remember, grizzly bears can run up to 35 miles per hour. But you need to know it's a grizzly bear and not a different kind of bear. That's a good point. Yeah. Which animal comes from the word meaning he who kills with one leap? Yes. Oh. The jaguar. Yes, that's right. Yes. Jaguar. Remember? Remember the guy from Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? He said the Jaguar. Okay, Peter. In which state would you most likely come across an alligator? Alligators are from uh, Florida. Right. Five million alligators in the wild. 1.2 million in Florida. Very good. Yes. Would you rather be approached by a Tasmanian devil or a gorilla? Oh, approached by... hmm, uh, I'm go- uh, that's a trick question. I'm going to say that the Tasmanian devil, maybe, because it could bite me but not kill me. No, you oh. weren't listening. Tasmanian listening. devil has the most powerful bite relative to its body size. Yes. Gorillas are known as the gentle giants. But he but can you, still crush me. I know. You wouldn't want him to sit on you. <laughs> okay. My parents were recently in a sanctuary in New Zealand, and they saw a rescued Tasmanian devil. They said the guide said not to... Don't try to pet it. Right. It's going to bite your hand off. Don't try to pet it. What is the plural for hippopotamus? Oh, hippopotamuses. I think so. Hippopotamuses. That's what I've been saying. Oh, okay. And last one. Good. Which wild cat would you least want to hug? I would not want to Lion, tiger, or jaguar? (laughs) I'm going to say, wow, I'm going to say tiger. Oh, okay. I don't know. It's just a personal question. Personal question. I'd like to hug them all, especially a lion. And especially after the sedation from the dart gun. I'm okay with that. You know, a little touch. Okay, Peter, you're sort of paying attention. Well, I was paying full attention. I just don't remember. Okay. The difference. There's more Animals Today coming up right after the break. Animals Today. 
One of the big ideas in animal rights is that each and every non-human animal is an individual being and should be treated and regarded as an individual. One organization which has really embraced this notion completely is Animal Farm Foundation. Their areas of work have to do with dogs in our society and the relationships with people. They have a number of interesting programs I'd like to introduce to you, and they're all aimed toward getting dogs out of shelters and helping them live happy lives with their people. So I want to welcome Regina Lizick. She's Communications and Fundraising Manager at Animal Farm Foundation. Welcome to the program, Regina. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Regina, one of the taglines on your website says, Sharing our vision of a world where all dogs are treated as individuals. I love that line. Why has Animal Farm Foundation made that a central principle of its work? Well, for one thing, we are very big on science, and that is the the science about dogs. It doesn't matter their breed. It doesn't matter their breed mix. Dogs are individuals, and they have their own individual personalities, and you can't judge them by a breed label at all. You can't make assumptions about them. You just have to view the dog in front of you. And when you don't do that, that's how you end up with things like breed-specific legislation. But it's also how you end up with housing policies that ban dogs or airlines that reduce accessibility for people with disabilities by banning service dogs with a certain label. Then, of course, that's how you also get some shelter policies that restrict who can adopt dogs with certain labels. And then that increases the length of time for dogs in shelters and also increases euthanasia rates. When the truth is these dogs are just individuals and if we view them that way, we can make more adoption matches and the more dogs and people can be together. And that's that's our main tagline here is Uh, Animal Farm is bringing dogs and people together to end discrimination, and and that's really what we're all about. And the way that we do that is by seeing all dogs and people as individuals. One of your organization's programs focuses on increasing adoptions from shelters. Tell us about that. We do a lot of outreach, and we have a lot of educational materials out there. And then we also have people who go to shelters and speak about things like removing breed labels. Um, Because when you remove breed labels for all dogs and when you view all dogs as individuals, that increases adoptions for all dogs, not just dogs that may be labeled pitbull, but for all dogs in shelters. And that's also how you make better adoption matches. Viewing a dog as an individual, you focus on that dog's personality instead of preconceived notions you may have about that dog. And, and you know, that's what people want. People want to adopt a dog that's going to fit great into their family. So the more that shelters can focus on that, the more adoption matches they'll make. Another of your programs support the training of detection dogs who then go out and work with law enforcement to sniff out drugs and guns. Obviously, I really like that these dogs are rescued from shelters. Why does Animal Farm Foundation like to be involved in this sort of activity? Oh, there are so many reasons. For one, these are dogs who need a job. These are dogs who probably wouldn't be adopted. Yeah. Um, some of the dogs that we have that have entered the program, they were on a euthanasia list. So the program literally saved their lives. That's so and great. Then in turn, these dogs end up in going on to do life-saving work by you know helping to remove drugs off the street, but also this goes back to bringing dogs and people together, is that 
what the program is really about is building relationships between not just the dogs and, you know, the police department that they work with, but between the police officers and their communities. And a lot of our dogs work in schools with school resource officers. So they're building those great relationships and that's, that's really powerful. So it's not just about them detecting the drugs or the guns. I mean, of course, keeping communities safe is so important, but for us, it's all about those relationships that are being built. Tell us about your service dog program. Oh, well, this is a very special program for me. I have a service dog. I, I did not get him through AFS, but um, as someone with a disability, I love talking about this program. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the world is not designed for people with disabilities. And it's it's very hard to, to navigate the world when you're not able-bodied. And so what our service dog program does for one, it shows people, again, that dogs are individuals. You don't have to be a purpose-bred, purebred dog to be a service dog. It's all about the individual dog and that that individual dog has the potential and the willingness to help someone live a fuller life. And, the, you know, if you think about the two programs, the detection dog program and the service dog program, they show very different ends of the spectrum. These are very different kinds of dogs. The service dog could not go and do the detection dog work and vice versa. The individual dog and their potential and their ability. Regina, does Animal Farm Foundation assist individuals in need of a service dog? We train our own service dogs. I see. So we train dogs for mobility. So, you know, dogs who pull a wheelchair, dogs who do bracing and balance. We also have trained a hearing dog, and then we train psychiatric service dogs. Regina, another one of your big interests is opposition to breed-specific legislation. And this is an area Animals Today has covered often. And I would just say here that I strongly oppose these sorts of laws as well. But there are voices out there who claim to be experts who strongly state certain types of dogs, independent of their owners, are inherently or naturally more dangerous than others. They say that pit bull type dogs bite more often, inflict more serious bites, and harm more children than any other type of dog. So a two-part question. First, mm -hmm. explain why you so strongly oppose laws against certain dog breeds or types. And second, how do you respond to claims that certain dog types or breeds are inherently more dangerous as part of their nature? The science is that dogs are individuals regardless of their breed or breed mix. I'm not saying that breed traits do not exist. They do. However, they do not determine who a dog is. They do not determine, determine a dog's personality. And then when you get to um, a lot of dogs, they're mixed breeds. And in that case, they're not part of any breed. So the label that you apply to them really has you know, zero meaning. Um, and a lot of dogs who get labeled pit bull you know, they're just mixed breeds. Right. So, you know, the, the answer is both. We oppose them because dogs are individuals and we really need to focus on responsible dog ownership. And, and then, and that's also then focusing on the individual dog and how an individual dog behaves. And, you know, the data just isn't there to back up that BSL works. It just doesn't work. What works are policies and laws that focus on responsible dog ownership. Regina, tell us your website. It's animalfarmfoundation.org. 
Communications and Fundraising Manager at Animal Farm Foundation, Regina Lisick. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. This is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at animalstodayradio.com. Animalstodayradio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.